Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Hello and welcome to today's podcast. I have a very special guest for you guys today to talk all about food. Thermos Chrysidus is an accredited practicing dietitian, accredited nutritionist, sports dietitian, personal trainer, and co-founder of Sprout, a cooking school and health studio in Adelaide, Australia. Themis also has a background of psychology, so his approach with his clients is more of a motivational interviewing style with a strong focus on practical and everyday advice for his clients. To follow Themis on Instagram and his team, follow at SproutADL, and let's get straight into today's podcast. Welcome, Themis, to the podcast. We are very, very excited to have you on today. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Well, we just got back a couple of weeks ago from a trip in Japan. We went on a media tour with your cult. It was an it was an incredible trip. Um, I'm sure a lot of our followers sort of saw us posting about it on Instagram and social media. What was your, I guess, your biggest takeaway from the Japanese culture? Well, aside from having lots of fun with you guys, I would probably say that um, my my biggest take home message was the way food is is so culturally driven. They don't really eat for health; they eat for socialising. They eat for reflection of the the culture and where the I suppose the food has come from of a major you know decades and generations. So. For me, I, I thoroughly enjoyed going to the school and seeing the way the kids ate there. That's an opportunity that so many people don't get. You and I are incredibly lucky to be able to do that. And and seeing the way social settings and culture influence the food, because I'm a big a big believer in, in these two factors driving what we eat and when we eat. 100%. I agree entirely. And we were so fortunate to go and visit um, a school and see how the school children eat their meals. And that, to me, just blew my mind because seeing you know these kids in grade one or grade two lining up and politely waiting for their meal and the children were serving each other and then they'd take their tray and they'd sit back at their desk and they would wait for everybody else to eat then they'd sort of give thanks for their food then they'd sit down and you wouldn't hear a peep out of them because they just just naturally knew how to eat so mindfully didn't they like it was incredible to watch it was it was amazing to watch it was inspiring to be honest I sat there and I thought wow it shows you what we need to really do um, to if we actually want to create change. And it doesn't come from telling people what to eat. It comes from making it accessible. It comes from making it desirable. It comes from making sure that it's a part of life um, rather than a a strict set of rules that we have to adhere to. And yeah, I mean, I I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Um, And I thought it was also interesting the way uh, the the principal at the school said they don't have an obesity problem. They actually have an, an underweight problem for their young children in, in Japan and um, they were eating beautiful solid you know meals at lunchtime and but like like we, we mentioned when we were there they didn't have a lot of snacks and they weren't necessarily indulging in these treats and um, energy dense things throughout the day. Mm, everything was very whole food focused wasn't it? Absolutely whole food focused um, prepared from scratch um, you know seasonal ingredients local ingredients real emphasis on quality produce and eating with others. And when you think about sort of the things that we might be doing wrong here, considering, you know, Australia has an obesity epidemic and and the health of, you know, the Japanese, it's, you know, they have a problem with malnutrition. They have a problem with 
you know, children being underweight. You can sort of see how that that difference between the overly processed foods and the eating meals from scratch, how it's so much more filling and satiating, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and I think what they do well is they prioritize food. They don't necessarily prioritize health or healthy eating. They just prioritize food. It's a really important part of their culture. And many other cultures around the world do that as well. You know, the Mediterraneans do it really well too, where where food is central to what they do, the way they behave, um, the way they socialize, their culture. And in this instance, in Japan, they prioritized food. They sat down, they ate their lunch together, and then they went out and played and did the other things they wanted to do and be normal kids. But food was really important to them. And when you sit down and prioritize food, the quality of the food you eat changes as well. When you're not eating on the run, when you're not eating in front of your desk, um, when you're trying to work, you're going to be eating more wholesome food when you sit down and enjoy a meal with others. And you're going to slow down and sort of actively take the time to acknowledge that a little bit more and just enjoy it a little bit more so you get more satisfaction from that meal. So you finish that meal and you're not automatically going back for seconds or reaching for you know some sugar or something like that afterwards because you actually feel so much more satisfied from your meal. Yeah, and you connect with it and you remember, you know, when, when I ask people, what did you eat today or yesterday or the day before or whatever it might be, they actually find it very hard to recall. But if you were to say, you know, to me what I ate at that particular hospital or at that particular school, I could tell you very easily what it was because we sat down as a group and I can remember, I can visually see it right now, the meal on my plate. But if you ask me what I ate for lunch or breakfast yesterday when it was probably in the car or when it was in front of my desk, uh, in front of my computer, the likelihood of me being able to recall what it was is very low and the impact, the positive impact it's had is, is almost nil as well because I haven't actually been able to sit down and enjoy it. And you know, I often say to people, the, the quality of food you eat when you're driving in your car between meetings is very different to the quality of the food you eat when you're sitting down. You're not going to have a, a salmon salad and, and so forth when you're driving your car. You're going to have a pretty basic average sandwich or, or you know, a, a baked good or something from a service station that you're eating just to fill a gap you're not going to be eating something wholesome. Mm. So actually taking the time to prioritize your meals, is it's so important, isn't it? Absolutely. And I guess the thing that I also, like I guess we know as dietitians, but I think that many um, of our listeners would find quite interesting was that they didn't have this obsession with macronutrients like we do here in Australia and some of the Western countries. You know, their diet was, was very high carbohydrate. It was on the lower end of the protein and it didn't really contain much fat. And they didn't prescribe, you know, subscribe to any of these high carb, low carb, high fat, keto, any of these sort of different dietary trends are online. And they were a beautiful, healthy, happy weight, you know, and they were those kids, they didn't even think about their weight, did they? Neither do many Japanese people. No, 100%. It's, it's food focused. And again, I think the healthiest populations in the world focus on food. They focus on whole foods. They don't focus on nutrients. And, and by focusing on whole foods and a variety of foods and eating seasonal food, you're still going to meet your nutrient needs and you don't need to worry about that. Um, I know personally, I don't necessarily sit down and analyze all the nutrients in my diet, but I know I've got faith in the fact that I eat a variety of foods from a variety of food groups for throughout the season. And I know that I'm going to meet my, my nutrient needs. Definitely. And again, I'm just going to do a little bit of a detour, but we talked a lot about gut health in Japan as well, being that we were on a media tour with Yakult, obviously. And I think the thing that really sort of took a chord with me was that the Japanese culture and the Japanese diet is full of natural prebiotics, isn't it? Absolutely. It, it really is. And, and obviously, there's the, the resistant starch as well from the, the cooked and the cooled rice, which is a major part of their diet. Um, their diet is naturally very high in those prebiotics. And, and 
it's probably something that again we need to rather than trying to do supplements in in every way we can in, in our Australian diet we need to look at what the great cultures, their healthy cultures are doing well and try to understand how it's incorporated as part of their daily life and try to make it part of our daily life too. Exactly. Because in Australia, you know, we're so fixated on taking pills and supplements and shakes and, you know, adding in all these really unnatural sources of pre and probiotics when there are some wonderfully abundant sources. You know, majority of our vegetables have natural prebiotics in them to feed that good bacteria in our gut. And I think other cultures do it so much better than what we do, whereas we just want to demonize foods and demonize particular food groups and carbohydrates and that sort of thing, whereas we forget that when we cut out things, we lose a lot of that diversity. And that diversity within our eating, especially from a whole food perspective, is the thing that really feeds and fuels our, our healthy gut bacteria. Absolutely. I mean, we, we want a quick fix. We want a quick fix and we want this, there's almost this kind of elitism attached with having a product that other people don't have. Therefore, it must be better for me. When in actual fact, the humble apple and orange and the whole grain is going to do exactly the same thing. Um, we're influenced by that kind of celebrity culture of, you know, so-and-so is doing this, therefore I need to give it a crack and these kind of superfoods. When in actual fact, it's just not necessary. And again, it comes back to those whole foods, doesn't it? You know, at the end of the day, we know the impact whole foods have. We actually don't really know the impact that individual nutrients isolated out of foods can have on our health. And there's probably going to be a lot more research in the future that actually shows the benefit of eating our nutrients from whole foods than actually in pill form or in supplement forms. And I guess a lot of the research that is done is done within um, is done within whole foods as well. So when people take supplements, we just don't know what that really concentrated amount has on the body and is it sort of absorbed and utilized in the same way that a whole food might we just don't know so i'm not really a fan of supplements and i'm sure that you're really not either unless there's a clear-cut deficiency no exactly right a hundred percent right i think that you know the way nutrients interact and the way um you know other uh food chemicals like the natural food chemicals and the antioxidants and things that actually interact within foods between within the one food and between multiple foods we have a lot more to learn in that space and probably um, need to focus less on the supplementation. Um, but, you know, like you were talking about pre and probiotics, our diets should be naturally filled with plenty of prebiotics, the food that we need to give our, our healthy bacteria in our gut, um, the lots of fuel they need to continue to flourish. And I think that um, every Australian can easily make prebiotics part of their daily life without having to necessarily use supplements at all. Mm. And I guess another big thing that really struck me about the Japanese culture, particularly remember the first night we went to that incredible high rise restaurant, they, um, they brought out all the dishes very separately. So they served vegetables as a main dish and a particular dish that really um, I remember quite vividly was the massive asparagus that we had, like a beautiful source of natural prebiotics. And it was just asparagus, just blanched for a second. They were still, um, you know, almost raw, very, very crunchy. And then we dipped them in that sort of wasabi mayonnaise. Do you remember that dish? Absolutely. Loved it. I'm a uh... Probably going to recreate that at home again when when asparagus are in season for us in spring, to be honest. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. But I loved the simplicity of it. And I think what I what I loved about it was it was it was an asparagus. It was a simple ingredient prepared well. And it really shows me that um, so many people when they when they have a I suppose a negative experience towards a vegetable, it often is reflective of the way it's been prepared in the past. Um, it's not necessarily that they don't like the vegetable. Maybe they didn't like the way it was cooked. And that's a mindset I really try to encourage people to change about trying things more than once um, in more than one, you know, prepared in many different ways because there's a good chance you're going to like something one way, but you might not like it necessarily another. 
Yeah, definitely. And it really takes those repeated exposures. I mean, we say the same thing to children, so why don't we say it to adults? It can take repeated exposures, you know, up to eight times or more for something to become um, a food that you you sort of recognize as something that you even like or, you know, even for your taste buds to adapt. You're not going to love something the first time that you try something. So repeatedly trying it in, in many different ways, in many different styles of cooking is really important, um, I guess, for that diversity in your diet as well. Absolutely. Um, you know, we, we talk about that all the time. You know, at the end of the day, adults are just big kids, right? And, <laughs> and a lot of the time, our, our, um, our preconceptions and our emotions from our childhood influence uh, our food decisions as an adult too. Um, and, and once they become ingrained, they become even more, um, even more difficult to change. So um, I often talk to people about, you know, the humble Brussels sprout and these kinds of things, the why they didn't like them, but why they are going to like them now when they're prepared in so many different ways and in a much more kind of delicious, inviting way. Exactly. And you know so much about that. Now, you and Callum run a very successful cooking school in South Australia. So if any of our listeners are, you know, ever in South Australia, you're visiting the wineries, make sure you pop by um, Themis and Callum's cooking school, which is Sprout, um, and, and look them up and go have a lesson with them because some of the meals that I've seen on Instagram, they're, they're absolutely delicious. Yeah, well, we, we love having fun with food. Again, you know, the message isn't about, you know, do this to be healthy and don't do this to be healthy. For us, it's about making food accessible, making food enjoyable, showing people that delicious food can be healthy food and um, and really just trying to inspire everyday Australians to get back in the kitchen and have fun because when you're cooking well, you know what's going into your food and you've got better control over your health. Do you, do you sort of feel like our obesity epidemic in Australia, do you feel like that's linked to our lack of cooking skills at all? Yeah, I, I really do. I think that um, at the end of the day, you know, you and I, we've, we've both been working in, in nutrition and dietetics for, for a number of years now. And I remember the day that I was working as a dietitian and I, in a private practice, and I still work in private practice now a little bit. And I was sitting there thinking, there is only so much I can do to help create behavior change for some of these people when they innately do not believe that they have the ability to go home and cook this dish. And their, and their personal perspective of the way they can prepare foods and their self-efficacy to where, towards cooking and, and what they were actually even going to like and what their family was going to like was seriously impacting the foods they were cooking or purchasing and therefore their health. So for me, the cooking school came about because it was, it was an ability, an opportunity for us to simply say to them, okay, you know what, let's get in the kitchen. Let's show you how it's done. Let's explain to you. Let's show you. Let's let you eat the food and taste the food. You know, we learn by doing. So we kind of said, right, let's show you how it's done. You have a crack at it again, and then you eat the food. And by that constant reinforcement, we were able to change people's perspectives and attitudes towards food. And now they go home and they cook more. And we've seen many people change their health status as a result of cooking more as well. That's incredible. You guys are doing such an amazing job. When people sign up for your cooking school and they come to the cooking classes, what's one of the biggest sort of like light bulb or aha moments that they have? when it comes to sort of healthy food and losing weight and that sort of thing? I think it I think it comes to the fact that the two biggest barriers for people to cook most at home is the fact that firstly, they think that it takes too long. And secondly, they think that healthy food doesn't taste good. So I think the two aha moments people have are, wow, I actually prepared this meal and it looks delicious and it tastes delicious and I got it done in under 20 minutes as well. Yeah. So for me, that's the two big the two big kind of take home points for these people. And that's that's empowering 
you know, that's that's really positive for them to be able to go home and make it part of their life. That's awesome. And I mean, for you to sustain a lifelong healthy lifestyle, you have to cook food that tastes good. There is only a certain amount of chicken, broccoli and brown rice that you can eat before you just never even want to look <laughs> at it again. So I'm such a huge fan of making really tasty, delicious and wholesome food. So what are some top tips that you can give our listeners in terms of cooking food that is healthy, but also tastes delicious. What are some some of your biggest tips here? Yeah, really good question, and I, and I completely agree as well. You you have to if something's going to be sustainable, you have to want to do it. You know, it, it, we live for longer than twelve weeks, so you have to actually want to <laughs> eat your food forever. Um, for me, you know, we we make we focus on making vegetables not a side dish. The the way the average Australian eats, it's meat and three veg, or it's something on the side. And I'm not a fan of that. You know, again, you look at the healthiest populations in the world, um, their meal comes together and it's a mixed dish, that Mediterranean style of eating where it's going to have nuts and seeds and yogurt and grains and meat and vegetables all in one meal. It's got all these food groups in small amounts on one plate combined together, full of flavor, full of texture, full of color. People want to eat it. So for me, don't make vegetables a side, firstly. Okay, because you, you you and I both know the average Australian gets nowhere near eating their five serves of veggies a day. So we've got to focus on getting those veggies up. So absolutely, don't make them a side. Make them a key part of the meal. And then get inventive. Use those aromatic ingredients. Use the ginger, the chilies, the garlics, and use plenty of them. What's one clove of garlic going to do? It's not going to do much. You know, yes, if you've got a bit of IBS, you might have to pull back on it a little bit. But for me, I'm going to throw five or six or seven or eight cloves of garlic into some green beans for just two or three people, to be perfectly honest. So go hard on those aromats. Use lots of those things to add flavor quickly to, to vegetables. Think about texture as well. You know, at the end of the day, you can think about the humble potato, right? You love a, a, a baked potato, right, Leanne? Love. I love potato in any way or form. <laughs> Good. So you take a baked potato and then you can, you know, you put that in the alfoil and you bake it. Not bad. Enjoyable. Then you make that smaller, toss it around a bit of extra virgin olive oil and put that in the oven. Is that a bit better than the baked potato? 100%. Yeah. Yep. So you've got roasted, crunchy potatoes. Then you take yes. that potato even smaller and you make chips. You've got golden, crunchy chips that people enjoy. And then you take that potato even smaller and you make French fries and you've got golden, golden, crunchy, crunchy potatoes. All of a sudden, I'm not saying we should be going eating chips, but I'm trying to highlight the importance of texture in food and how as Australians, we probably don't recognize that very much. You know, you spoke about it with your asparagus before, that crunchy asparagus, that fresh asparagus. Texture is really important. And I, as a young person, want to use my teeth for as long as I've got them. So <laughs> uh, um, I'm going to eat to make sure I've got lots of texture in my veggies. So stir-fried greens and that kind of stuff is important. And don't steam them. I mean, yes, you can steam them, eat them begrudgingly once in a while as an adult. We do that because at the end of the day, we're doing it because we know it's good for us. But I'm not going to eat steamed greens just like you're not for the rest of my life. I'm going to add lots of aromats, lots of texture, roasted, stir-fried, whatever I can to make them delicious. Definitely. What are some of your favorite ways? You keep mentioning heroing veggies, which I absolutely love, making that like the sole focus of the dish. You know, in Australia, we eat far too much meat, far too many, um, even just refined grains and that sort of thing as well. What is a few ways that our listeners can really hero vegetables and make, you know, and it automatically sort of reduces the portions of protein and carbohydrates in your diff, which is the perfect way for somebody that's trying to lose weight without having to calorie count or macro track or anything like that is actually just heroing the vegetable in and getting plenty of fiber in for good gut health. So do you have any of your favorite ways to hero particular vegetables? 
Yeah, um, great question. I suppose I, I kind of – I'm a very strong believer of eating with the seasons. So, yeah. um, you know, right now I'll turn around and go, right, what's in season right now? And if it's pumpkin or if it's parsnip um, – Brussels sprouts, whatever it might be, I'm going to want to hero the key ingredient that's in season right now. So um, I think it depends on the ingredient. For me, I, I'm loving pumpkin. It's absolutely awesome in the autumn and winter. It's beautiful and sweet and bright orange. So for me, I'll, I'll actually now take a, a whole kind of butternut pumpkin or a jap pumpkin and I'll cut it in half and I'll roast it slowly for about kind of anywhere from, you know, probably 60 to 90 minutes. And then I'll just absolutely load it up. So it's kind of like a loaded pumpkin, right? So it's going to have goat's cheese in it. It's going to have a duka. It's going to have lots of paprika and spices, some fresh herbs in there. So it's it's just going to suck up all these beautiful flavors. And all of a sudden, it's not steamed or blanched pumpkin. All of a sudden, it's what I'm going to kind of call loaded pumpkin, oven roasted loaded pumpkin. Delicious. That sounds incredible. And even as I was sort of asking you that question about heroing vegetables, I thought about some of my favorite ways to cook veggies. And when you mentioned pumpkin, one of my favorite things to do is make miso baked pumpkin. Yeah. It's absolutely, it's so delicious. And again, miso, just one of those natural things that are so great for our gut bacteria as well. I love garlic beans. I love honey carrots. I love parmesan and broccoli. And too often we we sort of want to almost... Um, you know, pinpoint these little ingredients and say, oh, but that's not healthy for you. Or don't eat too much, you know, honey. It's got too much sugar in it and that sort of thing. But I think that we lose sight of health in general, would you say? Like we just become a little bit too obsessive with restricting different foods. And it means that a food does taste really bland and it doesn't taste great. And it makes eating healthy lifelong really difficult. A hundred percent. We've got to inject flavor into these into these ingredients. We've got to make them desirable. Um, I often have the same discussion with people that come to our cooking class. I sit there and I say, honestly, I'm going to make a delicious, you know, Thai dressing now or a Nam Jim or something like this, and we're going to use it in our in our Vietnamese salad, and it's going to be delicious. And I might add a bit of brown sugar or something into the dish, but the amount of sugar that I add into the dish. For the, for the amount of people it's serving is is minimal, but what it is going to do is it's going to make the dish taste delicious, and then I'm going to eat a heap of vegetables, and when I eat all my vegetables on my plate, I'm less likely to go to the vending machine later on, so it's kind of the net gain is huge, um, and I've enjoyed my meal as well. I'm a big fan of you know dressings and all those things because at the end of the day, uh, if, I, if I can make my vegetables taste better, I might add a little bit of extra olive oil or whatever it might be. I'm going to eat more of them and that's better for me longer term. Mm, 100%. And I so agree with that. And I think that, you know, with social media, I'm, I'm on social media a lot and I see a lot of these infographics being thrown around in terms of losing weight. And I think that they're incredibly helpful for a lot of people. But I also think that sometimes they just, they make people so scared of eating. Like I saw one the other day that talked about, um, you know, dressings and condiments and that sort of thing. And that's all well and good. And if you're somebody who's doing a bodybuilding competition and you're about to get on stage in a bikini, then you probably need to be really mindful mindful of the extra sources and condiments you're using. But if you're somebody that's just trying to enjoy a lifelong healthy lifestyle, then adding some dressings and condiments are going to go a long way to making sure that you eat more whole foods, which is going to reduce the amount of processed foods that you eat, which in turn is going to pay off for a lifelong healthy lifestyle. No, you're 100% right. And we need, we need to look at the information we get from social media and other people and understand that um, you know we need to determine what's relevant to us. You know, you need to say, okay, I admire you for, for going along this path and I, I admire you for the for the discipline that you've got in your lifestyle, but that's 
you're trying to achieve a specific outcome. And for me, I'm not trying to be on the front of a men's health magazine. I also don't want to be, you know, overweight and unhealthy. I want to be able to enjoy my food. I want to make sure that food, food for me is the reason why I travel. You know, it's, it's something that connects me with people and, and I love eating it and I love talking about it. So I want to enjoy quality food. I don't want to have restrictions, but I still want to make sure I'm healthy as well. Definitely. So what is your favorite go-to meal to cook if you're at home? Oh, this is a tough one. I'm Give me top three. Give me some top three top favorite go-to three. meals. <laughs> All right. Top three. For me, I love seafood. So mm. um, I'm a big fan of, um, of raw – I mean, you know, being in Japan um, was a – one of the places I really wanted to go purely to eat a lot of their um, their raw seafood dishes. So I love a good kind of ceviche um, dish, which is basically you know seafood cooked using acid. And I use I say the word cooked in inverted commas. It's not really cooked, but it's kind of cured, I suppose. So I love ceviche um, seafood. So salmon or tuna or kingfish or whatever. Absolutely delicious. Um, um, my next go to meals. I'm probably going to be – I love a really good kind of um, – especially maybe now because it's a bit cooler, those kind of warming, slow-cooked casserole-type dishes. But I do really – it's not just about the meat for me. It's probably more about the sauce and it's probably more about the the condiments and, and the – the other flavors that you put into the dish. So it could even be the little kind of um, gremoladas and, and extra herbs and things you add to the dish that I really enjoy as well. So, and even getting a few chickpeas and, and lentils and things into these dishes as well. Again, those prebiotics, um, but that, are, that also add a lovely texture and a lovely flavor profile. And what's my third go-to meal? Hmm, that's a big question. Um, I think I, I also really enjoy... I was going to say duck um, and kind of gamey meats and things like that because I like the challenge of of preparing duck and rabbit and these kind of foods in different ways as well. Um, again, not because I'm going to necessarily eat a big piece of meat because that's just probably not the way I eat personally, um, but I just like preparing these foods and, and thinking about the way they complement vegetables and fruits and things. Wonderful. And when you were mentioning casseroles, I thought, oh, that's something that I love is just a good hearty stew. Like I find it so filling and so delicious. What is um, the base that you normally use for yours? I'm very much a fan of putting in all my herbs and spices and just throwing in a can of tomatoes and a can of lentils and sort of making that my base. But it's very basic. So I'd love for you to give me a little bit more inspiration for my my casseroles and my stews. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm I believe in making your own stock as much as you possibly can as well. Um, you know, food wastage is such a massive issue for our country and so many people. I think the average family in Australia wastes, I think it's approximately $1,400 worth of food a year. Um, now that's astronomical where people are saying mm. that they can't afford to eat healthily and we're wasting that much food a year as well. So, you know, all the little, the little odd ends of carrots and, and onions and all these bits and pieces and celery, if, if your veggies are looking a little bit limp, throw them into a pot, boil it away, go away and come back in an hour and you've got a lovely vegetable stock ready to go. So firstly, make your own stock. Throw in some kind of peppercorns and bay leaves and this kind of stuff. Delicious. Um, then what I'm going to do is I'm generally going to kind of sear off whatever protein is going to be part of my meal as well and try and get a bit of caramelization and add some flavor into the pan and then I'm going to hit it with a little bit of stock that we've just made. And then lots of aromats like garlic, onion, um, bay leaves, star anise, um, these kind of ingredients because they really bolster the flavor and add a huge amount of flavor to the dish. 
Um, a little bit of tomato in there as well, tomato paste or a tin of tomatoes, and let that bad boy simmer away and, uh, and cook slowly. And then at the end, when we get close towards the end, load it up with veggies or make sure I create another vegetable side dish, which isn't like just a side salad, but it's another kind of really major component of the meal. Mm, keep going with my inspiration here. What sort of thing would you serve with a nice warming casserole? How would you hero some some veggies as a side dish? Okay, so the other day, um, I can tell you from experience. How's that? I'll tell you what I had on Sunday night. Is that all right? Wonderful. That's okay. perfect. <laughs> all right. So Sunday You're making night, me hungry. <laughs> brilliant. I'm getting hungry myself. Sunday night was a um, a little beef cheek that we um, uh, that we cooked in a slow cook kind of red wine and bay leaves and and the little stock that we made and it was delicious. And then we serve that with a little uh, quinoa salad as well. So for me, a lot of people will have that beef cheek with, you know, polenta or mashed potato or something. And I just find that a little bit rich personally. So I wanted to have a, a quinoa salad. So with quinoa, we had um, uh, we had uh, pistachios, lots of herbs, so spring onions, parsley, uh, some dried fruit in there as well. Um, to add a lovely kind of sweetness and texture into it as well. So it was this beautiful, crunchy um, texture, but sweet and sour and herbaceous kind of quinoa salad. So it wasn't about the quinoa. It was about all of the other ingredients. And there was a little bit of quinoa there to soak up the sauce from the meat too, which was delicious. A little gremolata, which is lots of kind of herbs and lemon ju- and lemon zest and, and a little bit of raw garlic into that. So just like a little kind of um, flavor booster on top. And then I serve that with a lovely fresh orange, fennel, and um, uh, parsley salad as well. Oh, orange and fennel. What a great combination, right? So totally. You know, what grows together goes together. It's as simple as that. They're both in season right now and they're delicious. Yeah. And even just even just how I drink my water, like I think people forget that you can even just flavor water in a natural way. We got one of those um, soda streams a couple of months ago and we've been sort of just putting orange or lime pieces or just a few cucumber pieces and a bit of basil or rosemary in our water as well. It makes all the difference. Like water is wonderfully healthy, but some people, they do get bored of just drinking liters and liters of pure water a day. So even just using some of those beautiful herbs and citrus fruits to flavor some water occasionally goes a long way as well, doesn't it? 100%. That's a great tip for everyone at home to make sure they throw in, you know, a little bit of mint and a bit of orange or something. Um, whatever's in season, whatever herbs you've got adds flavor, makes it, you know, much more desirable. And we don't understand, we don't, people don't recognize how important it is to stay hydrated. And when you're Mm -hmm. hydrated, you're so much more alert and you function so much more efficiently. And most of us are dehydrated, unfortunately. Definitely. And dehydration masks hunger a lot of the time as well. Like a, a lot of time with my clients, if they say to me, oh, I'm constantly hungry, I'm constantly hungry. My first question always is for them, is it hunger or is it thirst? Like, are you actually just thirsty? And nine times out of 10, they'll come back and they say, yeah, I really haven't drunk enough water today. Absolutely. I agree. And it keeps you full for longer as well. Um, And at the same time, if we're dehydrated too, sometimes we can get a bit of gut upset too, if you're really dehydrated. So um, making sure, and then that's quite often something that happens with athletes as well, making sure that you keep your hydration up um, and not just in summer, even in winter. I actually think more people are probably prone to be dehydrated in winter because we just think about drinking less. And as a result, um, it actually passes, uh, passes us by. Isn't that funny? Yeah. And it can have, as you mentioned, such a big impact on our gut health, which people just don't really think. I mean, the biggest thing with with um, constipation is generally it's fiber and fluid, isn't it? And the fluid people, I think, underestimate how important proper hydration really is. A hundred percent. Absolutely. We can't just talk about fiber because fiber and fluid go hand in hand. Mm, they definitely do. 
All right, coming back to, we'll move away from the bowels and we'll come back to our cooking because I'm really keen to ask you a little bit more and give our listeners some more tips in terms of just making really flavorsome dishes. So what's your favorite sort of lower calorie way to flavor a dish? I mean, I know we don't want to obsess too much about calories, but the reality is that a lot of people who are listening to this podcast are wanting to lose weight or are wanting to at least maintain the weight that they've lost. So I guess, um, it you know, calories do matter to some extent, especially when we're trying to cook delicious food. So have you got any really great substitutes um, that you love to use? One of my favorites is subbing cream for something like Greek yogurt in a recipe. Absolutely. And and you're right. You know, we have to we have to make things delicious, but we can't all eat rich and full flavored and energy dense foods all the time. Like we have to be realistic mm-hmm. and we have to be realistic and understand that in Australia and we've got a we've got an obesity problem and we need to we need to address that, too. So mm-hmm. I think cooking and, and eating well is is one major important way of, of actually obviously helping solve that longer term. But we still need to be aware of what we're putting into our bodies. Um, so for me, yeah, I, I think yogurt is a great dish, a great ad- additional ingredient. It can be used in cream instead of cream and, and a number of different products pretty easily. Um, I use a lot of spices too, a lot of dry spices. So, you know, even just on a piece of piece of salmon or a piece of barramundi or something, for me, a quick meal is is a piece of fish, pan fried or baked in the oven, covered in spices, served with a salad, done. Very simple, very easy, um, but still full of flavor. One of my favorite spices is sumac. Do you use sumac much? Yes, I do. I love it. That with ricotta. Oh, so good. Absolutely. So sumac is this um, is this berry that's uh, red berry that is uh, dried and then crushed. And it's got this lovely kind of citrusy, acidic and sweet and sour kind of flavor profile. A lot of people say it tastes like pizza shapes, okay? And I don't think they're completely wrong, to be <laughs> honest. Um but it's it adds it's one spice because it's so multidimensional that all you need to do is add this one spice to something like a piece of salmon and it is absolutely delicious and it takes no time at all. Um, but even just using those amalgamating spices like cumin and coriander and stuff um, add flavor to dishes really quickly. Mm, definitely, one of my favorite dishes is um, to cook uh, broccolini and then to roast up some chickpeas and put some ricotta and some sumac on top of that, and it's just. Oh, the texture, as you mentioned, so important. It's so delicious, and it just—it's such a wonderful combination of flavors. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. And you know, you know what I would do with that as well. I might even sometimes oven roast my broccolini, so you get these like little bit of gnarly kind of golden areas and a bit of extra crunch, mm. and then throw some kind of almonds over the top of that as well, or a little dukkha with that too. Extra crunch, extra flavor as well. Good fats in there, delicious. Yum, so good. I'm, I'm so, you know, such a huge fan of heroing vegetables. Just like you keep mentioning, it's, it's such a wonderful way to eat it. It just makes food taste so delicious. Yeah, well, you know, when you go to a good restaurant and you eat there, you know, greens or whatever, you love them, okay, because they're cooked to the um, to the right texture. They've got something else that's going to add flavor to them as well. So for me, yeah, you know, we just got to start thinking a bit more outside of the square at home. I agree, and I agree. Like, we should not be steaming our greens. Like, what a terrible way to eat. <laughs> it really it really makes you, you realize why people just don't like vegetables because a lot of them just don't really understand how to cook them or how to flavor them or how to hero them in a dish. I agree, and you know, it's just, it's just so boring. And that's the truth. I'm not going to, I'm not going to sugarcoat it for anyone. I mean, I know I'm a dietitian, but I'm not going to sit here and tell people to eat steamed vegetables. Um, 
because I know you're not going to do that forever. I want you to enjoy what you're doing so you keep doing it. Definitely. And same with frozen veggies. Like I'm all for frozen veggies. Like I'm such a huge fan and they're, they're so cheap as well. But I just, I did so many frozen vegetables with brown rice and tuna throughout uni that I could not even look at another frozen vegetable or another steamed vegetable probably for the rest of my life just because I just, I overdid them so much as a poor uni student that now when it comes to me cooking vegetables, I really need to find a way to make them beautiful and crunchy and flavorsome or I just don't enjoy them. Now, I completely agree as well. You're right. Those frozen vegetables can, you know, be a great time saver for people. And, you know, I'd rather someone use a frozen vegetable than no vegetables at all. But when you've got an opportunity or where you've got time, use the fresh veggies or maybe make the time to use fresh vegetables as well. You know, for for so many people, um, we talk to people about using, teaching them how to use a knife properly. Because if you know how to to cut up fruits and veggies quickly and easily, it saves you so much time. And if you don't have that time, or if you don't have that skill, then maybe chop up all your vegetables on a Sunday night for Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday and have them in airtight containers so they're ready to go so that when you get home and you want to make your stir fry quickly and easily on a Tuesday night, all your veggies are just going to throw them into the pan. Yeah, that's such a great tip because I know a lot of people, I myself, I'm so busy during the week and I have a lot of client calls later at night so I don't tend to cook um, fresh meals every single night. So we do a bulk meal prep on a Sunday which will get us through about three or four days but I know that a lot of people just don't like that and that's absolutely fine. They prefer to cook fresh every night and that's such a great tip that if you you are a little bit time poor, but you still want to cook fresh each night, you could potentially, you know, prep all your vegetables on a Sunday and then use them throughout the week, but still cook fresh on that night as well. Absolutely. Because at the end of the day, that's the part that takes the time. Putting the piece of meat or whatever into the pan doesn't take very long, right? That's that's the easy part. It's the veggies that take time. And because you're hungry or the kids are snapping at your ankles wanting to do something, all of a sudden the vegetables get neglected either don't put them on the plate at all or we don't put the effort into them because they just become an afterthought. Um, but if you've actually done the prep, you know, by simply chopping up the veggies in advance, you also have less dishes to do each night as well. Um, it saves you time and it makes sure you still get the veggies on the plate. Mm. And it also reduces waste because how often do you go to the shops on the weekend or the farmer's markets with the best intentions and you buy a whole heap of produce and then time just gets away from you and life gets so busy during the week and you end up at the end of the week and you just, you have a whole fridge of, as you mentioned, just wasted veggies that you could potentially turn into stock, which would be a great idea. But a lot of us, unfortunately, we just throw them out because we get to the end of the week and we just didn't have the time to cook them, although we had the best intentions. Now, that's absolutely right too. So you've you got to make sure when you go to the market, you go in there with a plan as well. You go in there with a, these are the four or five meals I'm going to cook. But I often say to people as well, be realistic about what you're going to cook and when. Don't just pull meals out of your backside and say, I'm going to cook these four meals this week. Actually look at your diary and say, well, when am I going to be home this week? What nights am I going to be home at a reasonable time to do a bit more meal prep? What nights am I likely to be home late which therefore means I have to have the have, have to have the meal ready in advance. Make sure that you're actually thinking ahead and not just planning for the sake of planning, but you're actually planning based on where you're going to be and what you're doing, and then you're more likely to adhere to that plan as well. Yeah, 100%. Such a great tip. All right, so my next question for you, Themis, is what is one of the biggest myths that you see when it comes to cooking and health in general? Oh, I think the the biggest, the biggest myth is the fact that um, – well, there's two of them, okay? One mm-hmm. is that – it's too hard or it's too, it takes too long to cook delicious, healthy food um, and, and healthy and delicious don't go in the same sentence. Most people believe that. And the other one is you can't cook with olive oil. Um, 
which is an absolute crazy, I, I just don't understand where this comes from. Couldn't be more wrong. Hard to agree with you. And I've seen a few infographics again on Instagram lately about the different um, smoke points of different oils. And when you see it as a visual, you know, people still say, oh, you know, you must fry with coconut oil. Nobody actually heats their pan above what the smoke point of olive oil would ever be. So I, olive oil is the only type of oil I have in my, in my pantry. But the myth that so many people think that you can't cook with it and it only belongs in a salad, it's absolutely crazy because because we know the health benefits of olive oil are, are wonderful. So why wouldn't we be using that as our, as our preference oil every single time? 100% agree. Um, you know, at the end of the uh, – have you actually ever seen someone determine the smoke point of an olive oil? Have you seen how they do that? No, I haven't, no. Okay, so this is what they do. They get this little box, right, and they basically – like a Bunsen burner, and they, they put the, the oil above the flame, and they, they basically wait – until and they've got a thermometer next to it and they wait until the olive oil starts to smoke and that is what's called the smoke point so we're using someone's natural eye apparently this is the least scientific test i could ever come <laughs> up with to determine the smoke point of an oil it's ridiculous and the other fact is it means nothing just because something's smoking doesn't mean it's nothing bad's happening to it as well it's completely crazy it's smoking points for olive oil isn't correlated to trans fats or anything like that either. The science, the myth is so strong that it's basically my mission now to tell people this is not the case. And the healthiest people in the world use extra virgin olive oil. Um, and you can, what do you, we're happy to use extra virgin olive oil when we roast our vegetables in an oven, correct? Exactly. Yeah. Everyone's going to do that at home, but then they aren't happy to fry with their olive oil. But I can promise you that 99% of Australians, there's two functions they use on their oven. It's called 180 fan forced, right? That's about it. That's, <laughs> that's all they all do. do. The oven does a thousand, the oven does a thousand and one things, but that's the only function we use. And I can promise you that their pan does not get anywhere near 180 degrees when they're cooking at home as well. So it's just complete contradiction. I love that you just busted that myth because that's something that really just grates me as well. When people say, oh, you can't, you know, a lot of my clients will say, oh yeah, but I, I can't use olive oil in a pan. What type of oil should I use? I'm olive oil like you, your pan will never get that hot like it's it's just not possible and the benefits of olive oil far outweigh the benefits of any other oil you know it you might want to use maybe coconut oil as a as an aromatic or as a flavor in a particular dish like a curry that's okay yeah, but if absolutely. you're just using oil for generally using oil olive oil should be your number one choice extra virgin olive oil 100% of the time because we know that there's so much research and evidence behind the health benefits of extra virgin olive oil absolutely i mean and, you know, when you cook anything, it creates free radicals. The heat, um, the pressure creates some free radicals in any case. But the difference is with olive oil, there's got so many antioxidants that it is able to fight off the free radicals that it creates. Um, whereas most other oils don't have anywhere near the antioxidant content and they aren't actually able to fight off the free radicals that's created. Um, and then on top of that, you know, olive oil is a is a monounsaturated fat, okay? And whilst we can't argue with the fact that, um, you know, saturated fats are more stable to cook with, olive oil is a monounsaturated fat, which means it only has one um, one double bond between carbon atoms. And we're getting a bit sciencey, but what that means is that's where the, um, the oxidation can take place within a fat. It's literally got it at one place in a, in a, in a fatty acid in an olive oil. Um, and if that oxidation does occur, it's easily able to be balanced out by a lot of those antioxidant properties. Um, whereas a lot of the other olive oils like 
canola oils and peanut oils and, and rice bran oils, they have a lot more double bonds um, because they are poly and, uh, polyunsaturated fats. And consequently, they oxidize at a great, at a much higher rate, and they don't have the um, the ability, the antioxidants to fight these off as well. So for me, olive oil all the way. Hundred percent, I hundred percent agree with you as well. And I love that um, we're also what we would call nutrition scientists as well as dietitians, because the way that you explained that was just was just perfect. And I think that people often forget that we're not just the food police; we have so much knowledge around nutrition and science, and even things like biochemistry as well. Absolutely. I agree. You know, at the end of the day, we make our recommendations based on the people we're dealing with and a body of evidence, the science behind it. Um, no one tells me what to tell someone else. At the end of the day, we use research and we use, um, I suppose, the people in front of us, practical solutions to guide the way we treat people. Mm, definitely. And just jumping back to the olive oil, there are so many different olive oils on the market. And even just going through my local supermarket, I see some oils that aren't so great quality. What are your top tips for choosing a really great quality extra virgin olive oil and also storing that as well? What are your tips around that? Uh, you know what? You know what I love about this, Leanne, right now? My my team are going to listen to this podcast eventually and the response is going to be, I can't believe somehow, Themis, you managed to talk about olive oil again. Okay? Probably for a good 10 um, minutes as well. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a big passion. Um, so for me, um, my tips to, to, to olive oil is always buy, firstly, extra virgin, mm-hmm. right? It's the first press. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got the highest nutrient content and the highest flavor profile. So do not buy any other oil other than extra virgin olive oil. You are wasting your money. Um, When you buy olive oil, always make sure you buy in a dark bottle, Mm -hmm. okay? Um, Buy in in small dark bottles or bottles that are completely covered as well because the sun um, will oxidize the olive oil as well. The third tip is buy small bottles, okay? Do not buy flagons of olive oil. Do not buy a flagon of olive oil from the young, from the old Greek man or Italian man <laughs> down the road who's got his own tree and he's pressed his own olives. Truly don't do that. It's probably going to be over-extracted, it's stored in a hot space in big flagons. Don't do that because, again, it oxidizes. Um, what we want to do is buy it in small, dark bottles and use it all within kind of three to four weeks because, again, it loses its nutrition and it loses its flavor the longer it's open and store it in a dark place. So treat your olive oil like you would a fine red wine. Definitely. I love that. And we could talk about wine all day long because probably the biggest thing that we discovered from Japan was that we both love a good glass of wine, wasn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> we're, we're realistic dietitians, aren't we? <laughs> Olive oil, wine, some vegetables. Oh, happy days. I could, yeah, I'm set for life. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your um, your cooking school in South Australia, and you've got a health studio attached to that, don't you? And you actually have um, quite a number of different dietitians working and other allied health professionals working within that health studio as well. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, we work, I started my career as a dietitian working in private practice, um, but quickly realized that, you know, at the end of the day, we, we have to be able to reach people at a greater rate than one person every 30 or 45 minutes. So um, for me, it was a case of, okay, the cooking school is, is a really proactive kind of community focused initiative to try to get people to eat well through inspiring their, them to cook more. But on top of that, we've absolutely recognized that there are some people that need a little bit more one-on-one guidance, that, that need a few more, a bit more of a tailored approach to them. And um, we've got five dietitians here that are all able to help people in more in a one-on-one capacity. So we work in anywhere from 
you know, obviously weight loss and metabolic conditions such as um, hypercholesterolemia and diabetes and things. Um, but we also do a lot in IBS, um, intolerances, allergies, and um, and eating disorders as well. Mm, great. So I want to get a little bit more clinical dietitian on you, I guess. And if you were to have uh, people come through with um, sort of gut upsets or gut issues, what do you sort of do around tailoring different meals and cooking sort of things for those sorts of people? Yeah. So so for me, I ask, firstly, I ask a thousand questions in that first consult when I'm meeting someone that's coming in with some kind of gut complaints. We want to always make sure that they've ruled out anything much more sinister, mm-hmm. you know, like um, cancers and, and inflammatory conditions. But then we def- definitely, once we've made sure that's not the case, we have to make sure that rather than putting them onto a stricter diet straight away, we make sure that simply fluid or fiber or other much more, I suppose, less restricted options are exhausted before we put them onto, you know, much more restricted diets like the low FODMAP diet or the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital elimination diet. I'm a big fan of these diets. I think they work really well, but I don't want to have someone restricting their diet if they don't need to. So um, depending on what they come in for, we're always going to look at fluid and fiber and small frequent meals and the amount of food they eat and their stress and the way they eat and who they eat with and all these factors before we necessarily put them onto a strict um, restricted diet. Mm, and you talked about some really important concepts in terms of sleep and stress and how they eat their meal and even just chewing your food properly has an incredible um it makes an incredible difference to the amount of bloating that somebody might get, just actually sitting down, enjoying your meal and chewing your food properly. So I love that you talk about all those sorts of concept, uh, concepts with your clients as well. Yeah, it's really important. It's because we all, we're all busy. We all live a busy, hectic, crazy life. And 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 quite often I'll ask the person about what they do for work and, and what how the family structure is and all these other factors. And that'll actually tell me quite, you know, before they've even told me, that'll tell me what they eat and how they eat um, based on their lifestyle. So um, finding out all those things is a really important consideration. And you're right, we don't chew our food enough because of so many other factors that influence that. But by sim- uh, we have a digestive system and the start of our digestive system is our mouth and our teeth. And if we chew our food properly, we give our digestive tract the greatest ability to actually absorb the nutrients out of that food. Yeah, yeah. 100%, 100% agree with you. Um, so I get a lot of, I guess, questions from people. Now, I know you're also a sports dietitian, aren't you? Uh, I've worked in a little bit of sports in the past. I don't do it as much as I used to, but let, hit me with the question anyway. <laughs> I was going to say, I get a lot of questions and a lot of people, I would consider myself somewhat of what I would call like a weekend warrior. So I'm not a professional athlete. I definitely don't train like one, but I do sort of train to improve my own performance and lift a little bit heavier, you know, run a little bit longer, that sort of thing. And I get a lot of questions from people who I would also term sort of these weekend warriors, these everyday athletes. Um, and a lot of people I see, I sort of, feel like we sort of live in this state of wanting to be on a diet all the time or wanting to restrict or wanting to be in a calorie deficit. How do you sort of feel about the concept of actually fueling for performance? Yeah, I think I think the concept of fueling for, for performance um, can really be considered by everybody. Um, at the end of the day, it's not just an athletic concept. Um, whether I'm getting ready to do a big presentation or whether I'm getting ready for a big day or a big cooking class or a um, you know, I'm hosting an event or whatever it might be, I'm fueling for an event. I'm, I'm fueling to, to host, you know, 200 people over the next four hours. I need to eat appropriately for that as well. So um, obviously understanding what, what I need to get out of my body is a really important consideration and therefore that determines what I need to put into my body as well. 
I'm not necessarily going to go and run a run a marathon, which is obviously going to have different nutrient needs to me maybe being able to host enough people and talk in front of people for four hours, but I still need to consider it. And for me, one of the biggest concepts there is timing. Fueling your body and getting the timing right is key. And it's not just – we often think about timing as only that kind of post-exercise meal or post-event meal or whatever it might be. Timing is often related not just to that, but it's the carbohydrate and the energy before the event. It's the distribution during the event. So how long the event goes for has to be considered. It's the question of what's available during that time as well and I can actually get my hands on and that's actually – accessible and something I can manage to eat or drink while I'm going. Um, and then actually, obviously, the meal afterwards, which shouldn't just be protein. It should always be protein and carbohydrate and vegetables. And the carbohydrate to refuel the energy you've used, otherwise you're going to be starting on empty the day after as well. So timing for me is really important. And, and this timing is really important as well because we often have people that want to make sure that they are recovering well um, and they're meeting their nutrient needs without necessarily um, consuming an energy I suppose, um, excess as well. Because if you get the timing right by manipulating when you have lunch or dinner or or when you exercise, that can actually ensure that you don't have to overeat as well. So rather than necessarily exercising straight after lunch, you might exercise and then make your lunch meal your recovery meal as well, which then means you're not actually going to necessarily consume too many more calories than you otherwise would have, but you're still going to get the benefit of, say, some protein and carbohydrate post-workout. Yeah, definitely. And I agree. The timing of the, your meal um, is so important as well, especially for performance. I see a lot of people who you know, are wanting to put on some lean muscle and actually they don't realize that you should generally be eating in a calorie surplus because it makes it so much easier to actually gain some lean muscle. Yet a lot of these people are eating in a, in a huge calorie deficit and expecting to make all these huge gains in the gym. I'm sure that you probably see very similar sorts of clients. Absolutely. If you want to change your body shape and if you want to put on weight, you have to consume more than what you are eating at the present moment. It's 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 pretty simple. Then, but unfortunately, people don't want to necessarily put the energy in; they just want to change the body. So you can't you can't have it both ways, unfortunately. Yeah, it's I sort of think about the same concept when people say to me, "Oh, I want to lose weight, but I want to gain muscle." It's kind of like saying you want to drive your car really really fast, but also super economical. You know, it yeah. kind of it it doesn't really make sense. <laughs> exactly, you want to drive your car really fast for a really long time over a long distance on empty. Good luck with that. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I'm glad that we cleared up that sort of little myth as well. Um, anything else that you sort of think um, our listeners would really benefit from, from the majority of the clients that you see in your clinic from a general healthy sort of weight perspective? Um, anything that you sort of see common themes that come up time and time again for you? Yeah, I think I'm a big, big believer of really open communication with with all of my clients. Um, I, I explain to them that my role as a dietitian is not simply to tell them what to eat and what not to eat. At the end of the day, they can go and get that information from anywhere. At the end of the day, everyone knows an apple is better than a Mars bar, right? But for me, I think my responsibility with my clients is to help them um, create behavior change. So um, at the end of the day, we are dietitians, we use science, and we're nutrition counselors, really. So we work with individuals to, to encourage them and guide them to create the change that they need to live a healthy and, healthy and happy life forever. So I make sure I'm really clear about that. I explain to them how I'm going to take them through, you know, a range of scenarios. I'm not just going to tell them to do this and then, you know, see them once or twice and it's over. I want to take them through the seasons. 
I want to take them through social events. I want to take them through Christmas. I want to take them through Easter. I want to take them through their birthday and talk about how they manage all these things because so many factors influence the food we eat. And once we help them through these situations over a 12-month period, that's when they're then really confident and capable of managing these situations for the rest of their lives. And I make it very clear that, to be honest, this is a long-term game. This isn't a, this isn't a sprint. This is a marathon, and we're going to work on this together moving forwards um, to create a really kind of happy mindset around food. And I think you hit the nail on the head there when you said, I want to take them through this for a 12-month period. That's almost unheard of that somebody would stick to something for 12 months. I mean, we have a great um, – my business partner, Angie, run a great women's, um, I guess, weight loss and healthy lifestyle program, but it goes for 12 weeks. But trying to get people to even just commit to the 12 weeks is almost unheard of. In this day and age, we have four-week challenges and six-week challenges and eight-week challenges. People don't understand the long game. And as you said, like if you can do something for 12 whole months, chances are that that's going to be ingrained into your lifestyle so that you're going to be successful long-term. But if you're going to do something so strictly and, and just cut so many things out for four, six, or eight weeks, and then that's it, then you revert back to your old habits. You haven't taken the time to build in those sustainable lifestyle habits or really come back to that behavior change that you mentioned. Absolutely. So long-term long-term gains are, are so important, starting with behavior change, isn't it? Absolutely. It's all about behavior change. It's all about attitude change. And it's all about, you know, your perceptions of your own ability to change as well. So um, for me, you know, I, I don't just want to see see my clients when they're doing well. In fact, I want to see them when they're when they're not doing well too. And that's often when they turn around mm-hmm. and say, Oh, I have there's no point in me going to see my dietitian this week because I haven't done what they asked me to do and therefore I haven't achieved my goals. So therefore I'm not going in. No, no, that's crazy. That's exactly when you need to get here. That's when we need to see exactly. you. So we can help you understand what's going on and help you reset and help you show you help you understand how to reset yourself next time rather than just entering this, entering this negative cycle. So um, taking them through all those social situations and, you know, all of a sudden it's, it's much easier to exercise in, in autumn and spring and, um, and summer and things, but, but it's difficult in winter. So we talk to people about how to ensure they keep their exercise levels up in winter and, and you know, the way we eat in summer is going to be different. The way you drink in summer is going to be different. So Taking everyone through that full cycle is really important. It's really empowering to them. And I love how you talk about in a, a sort of a seasonal approach as well. I love that. Not many people really do that. Um, so you link the food to the seasons, but you also link their behaviors to seasons as well. I think that's a great concept. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of the way we eat. I'm a big fan of, you know, again, when you travel around and you see different cultures and the way they do things, you understand the way the lifestyle and, and our behaviors and our in social interactions influence the food that we consume. So so I, I actually focus less on the food. I focus more on the behavior and the, and the way we the way we way we live our lives and how that influences the food. Mm, definitely. And you keep mentioning um, these social events as well. And I feel like for a lot of people, you know, they're great Monday to Friday, but it's really the weekend and these social occasions can be the big thing that really holds them back from achieving that healthy lifestyle long term. Have you got any, I guess, tips for our listeners around social events or weekend eating that you can that you can share with us today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, personally, I um, uh, probably don't eat anywhere near as much at home these days as I would like to. I love cooking, but unfortunately, running a business and um, and and having a number of other commitments outside of work, um, you know, on a state level requires that I often get around and I'm at social functions very often. So 
um, it's something I have to consider personally as well. And I talk to my clients about that and I explain to them what they need to think about. So for me, I'll often turn around and look at the schedule and I'll say, all right, well, when am I going to be home this week? And these are the meals I'm going to be cooking firstly. So I know I've got a good baseline to start with. Moving forwards from that, I control what I can control. So during the day, I make sure I'm making healthy choices um, because if especially if I'm going to be out at night. I then often think about alcohol as well. And there's alcohol at all these social events that we go to. So I'll say, right, well, these are the events that I'm going to drink at and these are the events that I'm not going to drink at. And I'll make sure that I drive to certain events. And um, especially if it's during the week, I'll pretty much drive to all of the functions because it means I only have a couple of drinks and that's done as well. Um, but I will identify the functions that I'm going to eat at and the functions I'm going to drink at and the ones that I'm also maybe going to indulge at um, because there might be a reason that the, the chef's great or the food's great or the venue's amazing. I'm going to enjoy this one a bit more than what I would another function. So again, thinking ahead, planning, understanding where you're going to indulge rather than just kind of going in and, and flying by the seat of your pants a little bit and then at the end of every function feeling like it's completely blown out, have a bit of a plan before you go. And again, come back to that other little thing about water. Drink lots of water because that controls your appetite and um, and just uh, be sensible about, I suppose, think about the way foods are produced as well, the cooking techniques, because quite often at these functions there's lots of fried foods and things. So try to make the right choices by the foods that are actually circulating around. Mm. And I guess it's, it's very much dependent, as you mentioned, it's picking and choosing the different types of social functions that you're really going to, as you mentioned, indulge at and other ones that you're going to back off a little at. So I'm very much the same as you. And one of the big tips that I have for the listeners today is at social functions, if you've identified that the quality of the food at that function isn't that great, like it might be a lot of deep fried foods and a lot of processed foods, grab a platter and be the server, you know, be the one that's serving food. Because if that food doesn't really taste that good anyway, there's no point really indulging it in any way. You may as well save it for another function where the chef is amazing and the food is incredible. And so if you grab that platter and you serve everybody else the food, there's less chances of you just mindlessly, continuously eating a lot of that deep fried, overly processed food, which is going to make you feel pretty crappy by the end of the night as well. Absolutely. And and obviously our Alcohol also drives that too. So, you know, don't over drink mm. at these functions and you're less likely to go for the crunchy, fatty, salty stuff because, um, you know, alcohol, if it's over consumed, reduces our inhibitions and it and it makes us increases our appetite and our food choices obviously become more poor. So limit the alcohol and absolutely you may take or even take a platter too. Mm. If you're at a friend's function or if you're at a function where you can take some food, offer to bring food as well because then, you know, you've already got a healthier option um, if you don't know what else is going to be there. 100%. That's a great tip. And make sure that the platter that you take, again, heroes some sort of vegetable, like the vegetables or the salad are the main part of that dish or the main part of that platter. And make sure you've got some texture or some crunchiness in that as well, because it just makes that eating experience so much more enjoyable. Absolutely. And it takes longer. You know, if mm. you've got to chew your food, it takes a bit longer to eat as well. And it therefore means it's going to take longer to digest. And that's a good thing too. Definitely. Now, the last topic I wanted to touch on with you was alcohol. So you've managed to bring your two great loves into this podcast, Thomas. Well done. Extroversion, <laughs> olive oil and wine, two things that we're both very much yep. fans of. Now, a lot of time people think that, you know, they can't have a drink and enjoy a, a healthy lifestyle long term, but we're both very much fans of, yes, you can, but obviously alcohol, it's sort of like a toxin to the body. We obviously don't want to overconsume. So what are your tips for our listeners today around alcohol and sort of being able to incorporate that into a healthy lifestyle? Yeah. Um, if they want to. Absolutely. Exactly. Obviously, it's it's up to everybody and their personal choices. Um, I would say that, you know, once again, looking back at healthy cultures, the healthiest population in the world, 
the the healthiest cultures have alcohol as part of their diet. The but it's not the way we have it in Australia. It's not they don't go out mm. to necessarily over drink, which is we have to change the way we drink in Australia. We have to change the culture around alcohol. It's not about drinking to get mm-hmm. drunk. It's about having a glass of wine because it matches the meal and because you enjoy it and because you're having a great time with friends and family. So again, it comes back to the way we consume alcohol for me. Um, I absolutely think alcohol can be part of a healthy diet. I think that I drink for for quality over quantity, um, and I drink for the social experience of the people I'm hanging out with as well. Um, therefore, I'm not going to necessarily just have a couple of drinks on a Monday night with Matt home by myself, and I'm just drinking for the sake of drinking. That probably doesn't appeal to me. So kind of understand your motivation for drinking when you are having a drink, and make sure that the motivation's right. And if it's not right, have an honest conversation with yourself and maybe have a chat to a friend and think about, okay, why am I drinking and how can I actually change this? What is my motivation for, for consuming alcohol? Um, and yeah, and make sure that it's part of an experience. It's not the only part of an experience. It's part of an experience. And try to break the habits of just having a couple of drinks every night as part of a kind of a, a way of relaxing because, again, that's when you need to start questioning the motivation of the alcohol. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I love those tips as well. And I'm very much um, a fan of sort of using alcohol um in a social occasion when you're with friends and family, but also still being very mindful of it. You know, if you're if you're at a party and you don't really know too many people and you're a little bit nervous, it's very easily to knock back, you know, a couple of drinks in you know, five or 10 minutes, purely because you're not really being mindful. You haven't slowed down to really taking the time to enjoy that drink. You're sort of just drinking it like you would a bit of water or something. And then before you know it, you've had three or four kind of drinks, and then you're sort of looking for that salty, crunchy type of food. So I think being mindful around our our alcohol is something um, that's quite important as well, isn't it? I agree. And this is the reason why I'm not a very big fan of things like drinks packages, because um, people simply Mm. consume them because they're there, because they're free, you know, in inverted commas again, not necessarily free, but someone's paying for them. But, but you know, they're available and we're not drinking quality anymore. We're just drinking for the point of drinking. I'd rather pay for my alcohol and buy what I want and sit down and enjoy it at a nice, in a nice peaceful way with some friends and family as opposed to just, yeah, just nailing drinks for the sake of it. Yeah. Yeah. Great tip. All right. We're going to close out this podcast, but First up, I want to know what are your top choices? If somebody um, is somebody who socializes quite a lot, you know, they go out quite a lot. They might be in a job where they're required to sort of wine and dine different clients, or they might be somebody who works within the hospitality industry and they have a lot of, you know, food on offer all the time. What are your sort of top tips to, I guess, remain healthy um, lifelong? Good question. Um, For me, I would say have some go-to kind of restaurants that you know, um, are going to provide you with what you want that are also going to, that you know the menu really well for as well. So firstly, do that. Secondly, um, perhaps look at lunch meetings as well because I think people tend to um, uh, overeat less and drink less alcohol if they have the meeting at lunch too. So um, definitely do that. And thirdly, make sure that you've got a nice regular exercise routine as well. Um, I feel like the exercise for me is something that is a really important reset. It's something that gives me a bit of downtime away from the conversations. It's a bit of personal time. It's a, it's a stress release and it's just something that just kind of kickstarts me for a nice healthy day as well. 
Mm. And I think that's such a great tip you mentioned about the lunch meetings. And I'll even take it one step further. My favorite type of meetings are breakfast meetings. And, you know, it's very, very rare. I don't think I've ever had an alcoholic drink at (laughs) breakfast. And you don't feel pressured to have, you know, a glass of bubbles with your morning porridge. But one of my favorite things to do is order the nourish bowl, which a lot of different cafes typically offer. And it'll typically have things like eggs or falafel, a heap of grilled vegetables and some greens. And cafes are getting really creative and making those bowls really tasty. You know, we've got Almost we've got duco, we've got good quality extra virgin olive oil. So having a breakfast type of meeting or if you're going out to socialize, breakfast can be a wonderful addition. You don't sort of feel pressured to have an extra drink or, or have some dessert if somebody else is doing that as well. So I think that's a wonderful tip that you that you gave our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a, a chat over a coffee as well. Coffee meetings work quite nicely as well now too. So yeah, it doesn't always have to be around um, you know, around lots of food or it doesn't always have to be around alcohol as well. Mm, definitely. All right. Final question for you, Thomas, today. Um, it's been such a great chat. I could I could go on forever, but I better, I better wrap it up with you because I know you're busy. You've probably got a hundred things to do. What would be your top three tips for somebody that just generally wanted to improve their health and nourish their body long-term? So we're talking about health long-term here, not necessarily crash dieting or losing weight. Just if you think, think about your health in general, what would be your top three tips to consistently nourish your body? Okay. So my top three tips, um, uh, you've got to play the long game, right? You've got to play the long game. We live for longer than 12 weeks. Please think about, <laughs> think about the future. Think about, you know, if you could change, if, in, if, if it, at the age of 85, you need help getting out of bed, you need help going to the shower, you need help going to the bathroom, and you can't eat solid food anymore, I want you to think right now, because you have the ability to make a change that doesn't result in that happening at the age of 85. So think about it from today. And realistically, that's what you need to be thinking about. Not just about looking good in that photo on the weekend, but all those other basic tasks that we take for granted right now, will you be able to do them when you're older, basically? And if you think about that, for me, the key considerations are variety. Firstly, make sure you eat a wide and varied diet with a number of different food groups, not just a day or over a month, but within each meal, try to cram as many different food groups into each meal because at the end of the day, the key for me is to eat lots of things, not too much of anything really. So just eat lots of different stuff um, and it just spreads your risk a little bit. Make your, make your meal like a superannuation plan, basically spread your risk as much <laughs> as you can. Um, uh, eat with the seasons is the other one. Make sure you eat with seasons. Mm. It's kind of nature's way of ensuring that we do have a varied diet as well. Um, the food you want to eat at certain times of the year correspond to what's in season. In the middle of winter, you know, those root vegetables are in season and that's what goes so beautifully in our casseroles and things. In the middle of winter, the um, vitamin C rich fruits are in season. So your, your kiwi fruit, your oranges, your grapefruits, and that's what fights off those pesky little colds. So Eat with the seasons. It's nature's way of ensuring that you actually have a nice, wide, varied diet and the food's the most nutritious and it keeps it enjoyable as well. Um, And my third tip is get inspired. You know, make sure you're inspired about food. Make sure that you, you have a healthy relationship with food. Make sure that you enjoy cooking and you enjoy the social and the cultural aspects around food because that's going to ensure that you're able to do it forever. Yeah, absolutely. Love those tips. And probably my favorite thing that you've said the whole podcast is that really eating with the seasons. And I never really thought about it from the way that that's, you know, that was nature's intention. You know, in winter, the, the 
vitamin C rich foods are in abundance. So for anybody listening who's a bit confused around what is actually in season, if you just do a quick Google of seasonal produce in your country, there'll be a whole host of websites that come up with the different produce that is in season. A, it's a lot cheaper and B, you're going to get the best sort of quality produce as well if you're eating with the seasons, exactly like them as mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really, really important concept that we we all need to think about. You know, you're going to support your local farmers. You're going to reduce the carbon footprint from an environmental perspective and you're going to fill your body with the most nourishing food that's available as opposed to, to fruits and veggies that have been transported a long distance when it's been grown in the ground and it's and it's allowed to absorb all the nutrients out of the soil that it should have and then you eat it, it's going to make you a lot healthier. Yeah, great. So the biggest take-home, guys, eat with the seasons. That's that's such a wonderful message. Now, Themis, where can people find you? What is your Instagram handle? Do you guys have a cookbook available that you put out as part of the cooking school? If people um, might live overseas and they can't get to South Australia, is there somewhere they can contact you or get in touch with you online? Yeah, absolutely. They can uh, check us out at sprout.edu.au. Um, we've got a, an Instagram handle, which is at sproutadl as well. Um, and same on Facebook and Twitter too. So we'd be happy to um, help with any in any way we can with anyone out there. Wonderful. And we do have a cookbook, sorry, Leanne, as yeah, well. Great. We do have a cookbook which is available on our website and, and in store as well. Wonderful. So if you guys are really struggling to make vegetables the hero or just really create really tasty meals or really just get nutrition back to basics, definitely go and check out the cookbook that's available on the Sprout website. And we'll link um, some of Themis' social medias and the website in the podcast notes as well. Um, that is all that we have probably time for today thank you so much for joining us Themis. it's been it's been an incredible chat and i'm sure that our listeners got so much out of it thank you for having me i've enjoyed it as well wonderful well i will hopefully be making my way down to the vineyards and your cooking school in south australia sometime very soon i look forward to it <laughs> all right have a wonderful day thank you I really hope that you guys enjoyed that podcast as much as I did and I'm sure that you learned a lot, particularly around the concept of seasonal eating. I really love that concept that you're able to explore lots of different types of fruits and vegetables depending on what type of season or what type of weather that we're having at the moment. So as always, um, if you enjoy this podcast, please, please, please leave me a rating or a review in the Purple iTunes podcast app and I will catch you guys in the next podcast.